they actually like that. They like that there's a break in the action, they can do their thing and then come back to it. Because like that's where my fear is that we're so ADD as a society now that all we want is quick content. And so that's where I think maybe soccer does have some risk in its future that it needs to be addressed. Welcome to Playing Business. I'm Deshaun Kaiser. And I'm Dan Gardner. During season one of Playing Business, we sat down with professional athletes, sports commentators, league owners, and one of the world's most prolific climbers to ask the question, can success in sport translate to success in business? I'm excited about this episode because we're joined by Ali Wagner, a former professional soccer player, Olympic gold medalist, and soccer analyst. We'll explore how women's soccer has the potential to dominate fandom on a global level and dissect what it takes to captivate the broadest audience. We debate the future of broadcasting and reaching fans amidst the rise of dramatic storytelling and influencer-driven social media. And she'll tell us the fascinating story of her journey of launching Bay FC, the newest team in the National Women's Soccer League, which she has actually said was tougher than raising triplets. Let's get into it. Yeah, this is great. We've been uh, we've had your name double circled since our, our trip out to uh, Cannes this past year, as we're looking for you know just simply off of Google looking for athletes who are you know running sophisticated businesses, thinking at the highest level. Um, it was very clear um, after your announcement of of your newest venture that clearly you're you're in in the in the sweet spot of what we're looking for for guests. So I'm super excited for this, this conversation. Oh, yeah. No, thanks for having me. Um, obviously, it doesn't get better than Can. Maybe next time we should actually go back to Can and film this. What do you think? Deal, deal. Hey, <laughs> we'll anytime you want. Yeah. <laughs> if we could do that a couple times a year, that'd be awesome. Okay. Let's, let's, let's do this. Let's dive right yeah. in here. I, I got to be honest. I'm a Notre Dame guy. And as we were doing just a tad bit of research, I happened to see a little bit, a little bit of a story about how Notre Dame made it to the final uh, few schools, but didn't make that decision. Why not? I mean, it's, it's God country. I mean, first of all, how how deep were you digging to get that information? The internet wasn't even around when I was going <laughs> getting recruited to colleges, so that's impressive. Um, yeah, you know, I, it it it. It was so close, but it was so cold. It was so cold. <laughs> I could not get over that. I'm a California girl. My my dad was intent on me going there. My mom equally so. They're from the Midwest, so we're cheeseheads. Um, family's all from Wisconsin, so they really did want me to go to Notre Dame, and they wanted me to have that big game uh, or big school experience. You know, largely driven by football, as you can imagine, but soccer is played with your feet and if your feet are numb you have no touch on the ball and you got no feel sorry for anyone that is thinking about going to notre dame and playing soccer i'm not trying to ruin your recruiting class but it is a real thing it's a real problem so that was one of the reasons i didn't go there and then the other quite honestly and and really the more compelling reason was that i wanted to go do something that hadn't been achieved before and notre dame had won a national championship you know i looked at santa clara and the opportunity to to go and, and, and win a first national championship for the whole school. Um, I mean, I know the men's program claims they have one, but they share a title. And we all know that's like handing out participation trophies in youth sports. So going to Santa Clara and, and winning that first national championship for them in any sport was, was really the biggest um, or compelling, most compelling reason that I landed there. And, and we were lucky enough to get it done. So I'm sorry about Notre Dame. I, I I actually live on the street with someone that's a massive Notre Dame fan. He went there. He hangs his flag out every every Saturday. He's in misery during the fall right now. But um, 
you know, the, but history, um, I think, served me well. Well, I think that there's there's going to be a throughput on this conversation. As Dan and I have, have prepped for this, uh, you know, just the the state of soccer is just such an interesting. It's at an interesting time. You know, it's, it's you can't you can't look at sports media right now without having some sort of a conversation about Messi or about David Beckham owning a team. But but before we get to where you're at today and in, in the state of soccer today, like what what was soccer like then? You know, what, what specifically women's soccer? Uh, obviously. Notre Dame, of course, had a couple, you know, national championships by then. Yeah. But, but just, just at, at the, at the, in the grand scheme, like, how, how would you define soccer at that point? Yeah, a great question, by the way, because I do a lot of podcasts, and and no one really actually gets into that that meat of of a topic because they just glance right over it and talk about where we are now. So, uh, soccer back then, um, when I was going to college, let's just start there. So, I was lucky enough to be brought into the national team. Uh, we called it a residency program in 1999. So we were preparing for the 1999 World Cup. I ended up being the last player cut from that roster. You know, the iconic moment of Brandy taking off her jersey. That That's the World Cup we're talking about, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. At that point, I couldn't watch soccer. I couldn't turn the TV on. I think Fox Soccer Channel did exist. But it wasn't like it was, um, you know, this this marketed entity, this marketed sport, you just couldn't consume content, men's or women's. And, and, and I say that, you know, with the caveat that Fox soccer did exist, they put some content up, but for the most part, it was unaccessible. So women's soccer at that point was just a passion project, right? Like for me, I fell in love with the game. My whole motivation was to go to an Olympics and win a gold medal. I saw Brandy Chastain do it. And the reason that I saw someone do it was because she lived in my backyard. She went to Santa Clara University. And, and so she was a tangible uh, person that I could look up to and know that there was something greater out there. Tiffany Roberts, another name from the Bay Area that, that actually kind of drew me into what was possible in sports. So soccer back then was your parents usually coached you going through the youth program. And then when you got to a certain age, you know, you, you were recruited by the top colleges coming out of a few tournaments. And, and then if you landed on the national team, that was like your stepping stone to, that was your ascension. You know, that was your stepping stone to get on the full team and playing at a division one college. So um, I think it was much cleaner, much simpler in terms of a, a progression and a pathway for these young athletes. It's very complicated now, but in terms of the visibility the energy, the momentum, it didn't exist in the U.S. for, for I think, on the men's or women's side. You know, MLS was just starting. And, and 99, to be fair, 99 um, felt like an inflection point, but we never grabbed a hold of that momentum, um, commercially speaking, as a, from a business standpoint, and drove that over the line and drove it to where we could, you know, ultimately go, which is, I think, where we are now. So I think that was just this this pure passion phase of, of football and you know, you did it for the right reasons, and it still wasn't looked at as um, a, a commercial proposition. It wasn't looked at as something that was monetizable by smart business people. And and I think, you know, uh, the entertainment value U.S. fans didn't get behind for a long time. Which is really interesting because, once again, a little bit of research, and I know this isn't like, you know, readily uh, available information, but if you look at the history of women's soccer – and the potential, you know, business case for women's soccer. I think you go back to like 1921, where some of the biggest games, some of the most money ever made at, for a, an event was made in women's soccer. 
Um, I believe that there was two teams in the UK, um, the Dick Kerr ladies and St. Ellen. They play in this, this match in which they're going to raise money for the military. 53,000 people show up. 53,000. They turn away another 10,000 to actually come to the game itself, ultimately raise a bunch of money, go on to do about wow. another, uh, I don't know, some like another 20 games, I think, in 20, or 1921. And then all of a sudden, ban. Women's yep. soccer in the UK is banned for 50 years. Yep. 1971 isn't until the next time that we actually see women's, women's soccer come in. Title IX comes in in 1972. So a lot of this discussion, specifically on the business case for uh, uh, soccer in general, in general, but then specifically women's soccer, it's like, mm -hmm. could you imagine where women's soccer would be today if that just continued on? That's incredible. I, I actually did not know that stat. I, I knew the ban right and i knew it was getting a lot of traction and momentum in england or the uk and and then they did ban it i knew that part of the story i did not know that they were packing stadiums um and, I, and a, a little side note on that not only were they packing stadiums they also played men's teams and beat the men's teams in some, <laughs> several times over i should also just add that to the story as well yeah you should and <laughs> and we should definitely make this go viral so the rest of the world gets educated because it is it's pretty wild right when you think about the 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 narrative that has been put on men's sports men's you know men's soccer women's sports women's soccer because so much of it is a false reality i mean I, do i think that the top women's players can beat the top men's players no you know but i think a sam kerr absolutely could compete you know at at a really high level in the men's game so there there is a difference of course but the reality is um you know these women are, by the way, it's doing this. It's accelerating in terms of, of what these women are capable of producing on the field, athleticism-wise. Um, but but entertainment-wise, it's there. And that's what your, that's your story. Like, 1920, it, it was entertaining. It still is entertaining. It's more entertaining. The product is getting better. And, and when we talk about sports as a business, it's entertainment, right? We're, we're really just talking about entertainment value. Uh, you look at the show that is put on if you go to an NBA game, an NFL game, right? It's 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 not just the product on the field. It's the it's the whole experience. It's what kind of environment are we setting up for you to feel like these intangible uh, impacts that you're going to carry with you and want to come back and gravitate for more. And and I think you know there's this piece of women's sports that for a long time they didn't believe that that was possible i guess you know and that was what was maybe you know the barriers to entry for a lot of these investments um no longer at to your point is that the case i think you know it the the data is now supporting that it makes a lot of sense yeah one thing to that point that um you know we've been thinking about is the fact, the entertainment side of things, and the fact that if you look at like an NFL broadcast or an NBA broadcast from the 70s, it was pretty good, but it's vastly improved on, you know, over decades and decades and decades. And they fine tune, even today, I mean, the MLB is still working on fine tuning and pitch counts and things like that to, yeah. to modify it, NBA with mid-game season. So it's continually innovating. And those established leagues have ha now have this huge advantage However, I'm curious to your perspective because now it's an inflection point. Like any big company that gets too big, they actually start getting slow to innovate. So I'm curious about, uh, you know, how you're looking at the sport now, obviously looking at BFC and thinking about like, are you now at the advantage because you could innovate? You're not, you know, hurdle, yeah. you know, you, you don't have the baggage of sort of this big organization that slows yeah. things down. 
perhaps more nimble, right? To your point. And, and I think, you know, we're, we're in the growth phase. And so there's a lot more, um, there's, there's just so many more variables that we can fold into hopefully our business model and, and strategy. I think that will drive that. I, I think it's an interesting question because I've been contemplating it, um, you know, soup to nuts. We're talking about game day experience, but we're also talking about like the long-term strategy for the team, for the league, for soccer in general. I think about that all the time. Like, yes, Bay FC is this project that I'm working on, but I'm also thinking about other, other ways that, you know, to potentially innovate in this space. And, and I think it's a careful one um, to, to be navigated because soccer is such a traditional sport, right? Like you think about golf, you think about, they're doing it in golf, right? With some of the new models that are coming out there. You think about tennis, very traditional sports. And there's, there's certain, um, you know, uh, protocols that, that, you know, you follow as a player and as a fan and, and how much can you disrupt that? is what the question is, right? And NFL, NBA, I don't think that it's as traditional, even though it's established, I don't look at it as like a more traditional and stuffy around the edges type of organization, if that makes sense. So I think they have more opportunity to maybe, um, uh, you know, lean into to what new strategies may look like. But I think soccer, our space in particular, I think there there is something to be done around, um, you know, shorter condensed content. I think there's something to be done around, you know, maybe uh, like smaller, uh, smaller teams, more skills contests. You know, again, this is not this is not based on innovation right now. But just think about the fact that if you're a soccer player and you go to the Olympics, you only have one event that you can win right? That's the team event. You win, you get one gold medal. Well, if you're a swimmer, you go and you have how many events you can enter in. You do freestyle, you could do 50, you could do the hundred, you could do IM, like you, you know, you can be Michael Phelps and walk away with 17 gold medals in one Olympics, right? I think there's actually space to do that in soccer, potentially. Again, that's just a very consume, like very bite-sized consumable format. And, and there's something in innovation that, that would probably drive that change. But as a whole, as as digesting what 11 v 11 football looks like I, again i think it's just a a really fine line to navigate because it's such a traditional sport because there's such history in it maybe not in america uh, but globally there's such history there but if you read have you ever read inventing inverting the pyramid excuse me it kind of goes into the history oh. of soccer it's super fascinating um and i won't dwell here too much but the reality is soccer has changed so much over the course of its inception and to where we are now. And so as much as it is a traditional sport, it's actually adapted, um, you know, over the course of time. And so I think we do have an opportunity in front of us and, and, you know, what that looks like, um, we're a Bay area, like we innovate here. So there, there can be some, I think there can be some really interesting moves that we do make as a team. I, I, I the, the interesting thing is if, if we were talking to, and, and I, I say this very, very, very lightly, I'm trying to tread lightly here, if, but if we were talking about women's basketball versus, you know, uh, uh, softball versus baseball, there, there's, there's, there's a, a true difference in the game. I'll just stick on basketball as a good example. There's a true difference in the game between the women's and the men's sport. Men are high flying. They're playing above the rim. It's it's truly different. I can I can sit here with without batting an eye and say that women's soccer is just as competitive and just as skillful, or even probably even more skillful in most cases. Specifically, when we're talking, you know, with the the U.S. Uh, uh, national teams on both sides, I'd much rather watch 
a women's national game than a men's national game. So the, as you, as we think about building Bay FC, and I really want to dive much deeper. We're we're kind of you know high level in it now. I would love to dive deeper a little later in the conversation. But as we as we talk about you know where women's bas or women's soccer is heading into the future, it doesn't necessarily need a a new rule or a lower rim or a closer three-point line or anything else that's too much different than how mm-hmm. uh, men are playing the game and still get the same, you know, entertainment value. So, so as you, you in particular, you know, played in, in, in three different or, or two different leagues and saw, you know, the rise and fall of multiple leagues, leagues within women's yep. sports. So it, because the, the entertainment is at the same level, like, does it really need anything else outside of, just more eyes and more recognition and more marketing? No, no. I mean, I, I love that you said that because that has actually been a longstanding argument of mine, uh, you know, inter- internally and then now more so publicly when I speak, just because I, I do think that they're the women's game. And so some argue that it's even more entertaining than the men's game. And I can, and I can get behind that theory and I can get behind that viewpoint because you can actually see the strategy, the play evolve. Um, it's it's not as as robust and and physical, even though it is. Don't get me wrong; I'm not saying it's not physical, but it's not. Um, you're not maybe having those flying challenges as frequently over the course of 90 minutes. So, no, I don't think the women's game needs anything different. It needs nothing gimmicky. Um, it it really just needs investment in the right areas. And and what at the end of the day, if you look at the top leagues, you look at well, let's just take Inter Miami with Messi here now. Uh, they so much of of fandom is driven by the athlete. You guys probably know this with many of the people you're speaking to. You you know you've lived it. The athlete drives fandom. You know if you can get it right and you can get your balance right and, and bringing in those athletes that that drive fandom, but then also create a compelling connection with the community with those fans that makes them stay past that player's exit. Harry Kane's a good example of Tottenham, right? Harry Kane became a massive fan, or I became a massive fan uh, of Tottenham. He he was one of the guys that that I just loved watching play, right? Now he's gone. He's moved on to Bayern Munich. People may follow Kane to Bayern Munich and follow more closely the German league, Bundesliga, or they stay on the team because Tottenham has actually created that connection uh, that in a way that 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 lives past those superstars. So I think if you get both right, again, we're talking about, you know, this applies to both men's and women's, but as Bay FC in particular, it, we don't need gimmicks. The NWSL doesn't need gimmicks to, to get eyeballs. It just needs investment in the right area. Investment in the right area is bringing in those top global superstars that drive fandom, and then it's creating those connections that live past, you know, the, the entrance and exit of those players. You can just grow, right? You can see it happen where you hit those tiers with those new players coming in, but can you keep those fans? Can you, can you make them come back for more despite that player's exit? Yeah. To that, to that point, you know, I think um, not innovating on the field because the game is so pure makes sense for the reasons discussed. But, you know, one thing we've been talking about is, you know, we've, we say fans are the new free agent because their, their loyalty to, you know, teams and clubs and even leagues are, are changing. Uh-huh. Uh, and you see a lot of innovation in, in you know, I mean, this isn't that innovative, but Drive to Survive, which is really similar to like Hard Knocks, like the narratives, yes. obviously, influencer. We had Paul Rabbis. Uh, I don't know if you know who that is. He's, uh, you know, 
the incredible lacrosse player who who uh you know was the best lacrosse player ever and then started a league and then kind of merged it back oh, with yeah, yeah, think, yeah, yeah of incredible he was incredibly innovative in the way he used social media in the early days of social media that really focused on that you know so when you know i think about where potential your advantage is is you don't have the you know you want the great media rights because that's where all the money is but you also don't have them so you're not uh, you know, connected to them in the same way that you could think about direct to fans in totally different ways uh, or direct to, you know, over the top relationships that you can mm -hmm. do. So I'm just curious, have you been thinking about that um, in, in new and interesting ways where you can create those narratives, not just like, you know, you know, TV episodic narratives, but just other ways that you can connect fans to the, you know, uh, fandom? Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. So I think that is actually one of the strengths of women's football historically, right, has been that we've had to sell ourselves and not, you know, in a in a positive light that we've had to be the ones that are our, our best advocates, right? So there's always been that connection for, for telling your own story. And I think that U.S. Women's National Team players have been exemplary in that category. I think that 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 has set up a great understanding within the league, within the teams, particularly Bay FC, that, that absolutely the way that we tell the stories of our players, the way that we tell the story of our club, the way that we tell our, the stories in our community, around our community, the things that we all care about, you know, those are, those are the connection points. Um, OTT networks, absolutely. I mean, I think that makes a ton of sense. Obviously, I come from a broadcast background. So, you know, we've been looking at that for a very long time, but there's a, there's a, some compelling, I would say, data that we have the opportunity to garner as, a, as it relates to like innovation, right? Because historically, you don't necessarily know and own the data of who's tuning, tuning into your games, your, your broadcast partners do. You know, now with, I think, the way that you can connect directly with the fans, you do own that data. You have the possibility then, you know, of multiple touch points. So there's, I, there's going to be, first of all, let me be very clear. We are still just trying to stand up our company, stand up our, like get players, get our, you know, get our ticketing going and, and, and like fundamentally set up a business. But as soon as all of that is, is taken care of, there's so much innovation ideas that we, you know, collectively are throwing around. Um, we have an incredible board at Bay FC with a lot of experience. I think a lot of creativity uh, as it relates to this space and then the relationships in the Bay area, again, that there's just so much to leverage here. So this is absolutely a part of where we're going, but there we have to, I think, check certain boxes before we start to figure out what's the most meaningful way uh, to drive fandom, you know, as we grow as a business. Like first we got to sell our stadium. Then I, I, I got to ask a question about this. You know, I, yeah. I built a business. It's taken me 22 years to, to build scale. So yeah. it, it's quite, even though it's like feels fast, it's actually quite slow I believe you you really got going, you know, a year before you're about to kick a ball on a field. How do you build in a year? How do you, how do you possibly do that? <laughs> you, I'll tell you what it's, you got to get really smart people in the room. Um, <laughs> I, I, Oh, it's gone through so many um, iterations. I would say even, even just from a year ago to where we are. Uh, and you, the first things first, like we had zero employees. We had founders. We had our, you know, Sixth Street is our lead investor and they have a lot of resources, but then we had to bring in and start to actually staff out an organization and who's going to own what, you know, we've had, you know, the, the, I would say 
the luxury of having Sixth Street make investments in the sports space. They, you know, they're one of the investors in Legends. So having those relationships um, to be able to leverage in the early going was incredibly impactful um, for us and probably gave us a head start that most expansion teams wouldn't have. But, but then again, most expansion teams don't have less than a year to stand up their company. So, so the sprint mode is, is a real thing. Um, I think right now we might be, don't quote me on this, we might have 20 employees. So that's like, that's a pretty good growth in a short time period. And as you know, if you built a business, you know, the people that you bring in in the early stages are really important in driving culture. So as one of the founders, you know, we've been pretty intentional of trying to make sure that we keep the culture um, the way that original intent was. And that's really hard as you start to scale. So um, you know, setting up that part of the business and then on, on the revenue side, I mean, partnerships, ticket sales, uh, community outreach, what is our community impact story? You know, how are we actually leaving an indelible mark in the Bay Area? How are we bringing the Bay together? All of those are, are you know, touch points, levers that we have to pull and that we're, we, we collectively, I think, are, are starting to have a real strategy around and feel good that, that even though we're six months out or less than six months at this point, that, that hopefully we'll be able to, to hit the ground running once it, you know, it's March or April. Contrary to Dan, I, I'm, I'm not 22 years in and, and I'm still trying to get from zero to one versus, you know, one to the moon. DK just wanted to drop my age in this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, but so I, I'm really, really fascinated. What, what, what I'm in the middle of, and what I've, what I've, you know, dedicated the last three years to is getting from zero to one, and that's what we're kind of talking about here. Uh, you guys have a very interesting uh, way to get there. One, you're in the Bay Area, so we can we can quickly just point to Silicon Valley and all the, I mean, your your coffee that you you know have on a, on a daily basis with the right people to to be building the business. Um, but you guys have a, a really unique team outside of you know. Sixth Street and and you know Wexman, you're all you know pretty much female led from start to finish. What are you responsible for, and how did you guys start to divvy out those responsibilities to really get this thing off the ground? Yeah, so I think as as expected, everything has just an iteration along the way. So initially, you know, I was the main touch point with the league, with every work stream you could possibly imagine, probably from footballing perspective, from the business perspective. As we've started to to build the business, I'm leaning or I'm handing off those duties to to our executive team that is running operations, day to day operations. I'm co chair of the board with Wap Allen, and and in that capacity, you know, trying to to be as supportive as I can and also try to help you know them and drive strategy. But then I also sit on the NWSL board as a governor, the alternate governor. So um, I'm the the club's touch point with the league, if you will. And, and so it's, it's actually a super interesting process where I don't know how it's typically done in other leagues, but, you know, not being on the executive team, but being, you know, a part of the NWSL board, it's, it, it's been a learning process for me just to even disseminate information and the, and, and how we strategize collectively, you know, to, to help the league and then also help, you know, stand up our business in the process. So, I'm involved in, in as much as I'm on the board, I'm also involved in like this morning, had a call on game day experience. What do we want the run of show to look like on a game day, for instance, you know, and uh, branding I, on calls with, with partners and talking about, you know, what, what we think is, is, you know, our shared mission and why we think a partnership makes sense. Uh, you know, I could go down, you know, meeting with government officials. I could go down every work stream and, 
and I'm probably actively doing something in that space, um, you know, once a week um, on the different different touch points. But for the most part, uh, you know, touching a little bit of soccer strategy, touching, um, you know, branding, revenue, partnerships, you name it. So, so very involved, but not leaving any of it except from, you know, a league touch point standpoint. And I mean, how did you learn how to do that stuff? Was it I know that you were uh, part of the ownership of Queensboro FC. I know you were uh, an owner mm -hmm. of a plant food company. Like, is it taking a little from along the way? You know, like maybe, <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear like how those things connect. I know, uh, I, 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 let me just hand raise. I have so much to learn. I am completely raw in this space. And every day I'm asking questions and trying to learn best practices from these incredible resources that we have around us. Because even like simple things, I love that question because it's like, there's so many simple things like, what should I be communicating? Like, how much do you need to know? And, and those, are, those are actually like harder for me than I thought they'd be, you know, because my brain goes, okay, here, here, here's how I see it. And then it's, then how do I break it down and then, and actually share this, disseminate this information to then inspire meaningful feedback? And, and so every, I would say that, you know, Queensboro, I kind of got a taste for um, the startup mode and, and looking at like the different assets that they have to monetize and, and looking at the investor group, the ownership group, stadium, like there was a lot in the initial phase that I would, that I learned very quickly. Um, but, you know, that has moved to a different space now. And, and now for the most part, my plant food was, was just like scrappy, raw, make it up as you go. This wasn't a space that I, uh, that I had any, I don't want to say affinity, but I didn't really have an affinity for it. I didn't have any history in it. So it was just learn as you go and very, try to come very bit. Very Bay Area of you, though, by the way, to go to the plant food out of all things. <laughs> yeah, super Bay Area. <laughs> that is so true. And yet, you should look at my yard. I can't grow anything. So that, that, that should have been a red flag from day one. Um, no, I mean, I, I, think, I, I think business makes sense. If that, if that, like, there's a lot of logic in decision making. And, and the more information you can garner, I think the better... Um, your decisions will hopefully be. And, and so I know that's like super basic and fundamental, but like, that's how kind of I try to approach um, each silo, if you will, that I'm weighing in on. And then like, gosh, you need, I mean, what I, what you guys know, what you know from Deshaun from sport, like you need leaders, you need people that can communicate a vision and you need people that like, that want to make you be a part of something. And so I think that's equally as meaningful in this process is getting people to, to want to lean into a project, getting people to want to, to get the work done, um, for something bigger than themselves. I think that's, you know, that's also part of, uh, like my, my job in this process. Once again, to come back to the, the concept of, of why women's soccer in particular is so much different than some other sports is that th these decisions that you're making, these conversations that you're having, just, just in, 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 you know, diving deeper into this space, they have to seem at least a tad bit fragile. I mean, you, you get drafted number one overall, and the first league you're in goes goes to shit. It goes away. <laughs> you, you, go, you have to go somewhere else to go play. You come back. You go play in a WPS. That league goes away. And now, you know, now it seems like we have some momentum going in, in, in this space here. Like, yeah. Does – does, does with everything else, and we can dive into some of the other stuff that you might have 
I've witnessed, you know, during during uh, uh, your time with the women's national team and, and really a pivotal time in women's sports there. But like from purely from a business perspective, like do, do things feel solid? Like does 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 this league feel like it's going to be the league? Like are, actually, before we even get to there, like are, are there any what does competition look like? Is there European leagues that are as big as this one? Yeah. So again, great question. So the the biggest comp- so here's here's my high level narrative, right? I think. I really do believe, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. So I think that is first the, 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 the foundation that we need to collectively be thinking about this in women's soccer specifically. Women's sports, yes, because I, I even talked to WNBA about it, right? Like we're not competing. This is an opportunity for us to both um, lift each other up. So that's how we think about it globally. And, and so the more that I, we're, we're, we're scratching the surface on the eyeballs that, that are, you know, that we can potentially garner it to, to become avid fans of women's soccer, right? We're just scratching the surface. There's so many countries where it, it's still looked down upon. And, and this isn't because of our, because of where we are as, as a world economy and access to information, access to, to consume content. We shouldn't just be thinking about this as United States, as UK, as Germany, right? This is global. Can you bring in global fans? Um, so, so I would start there. Now, the competition WSL has has made great strides in the past what five years, maybe. Uh, they weren't investing in in women's soccer for a very long time, probably, you know, coming off some of their biases to actually ban football for a long time that you brought up earlier in the show. So, uh, there they've made really quick progress. But imagine they had the infrastructure in place, right? So, if you're Arsenal now, you do start a women's team. You've already got your training facility set up. You've got you've got, you know, natural fans that you can hit. Although I will put a little asterisk there. I went and participated in, in this conference in England after Cannes, in fact, um, the ECA summit. And they talked about how they, they expected that their fans from the men's game would naturally just transition to the women's game. And what they've learned that it's a completely different market. So not only are they growing their market, but they, they had to re kind of market their product because they didn't before, if you're Arsenal, Arsenal's a game. Great. Come out. It's men's game. Everyone knows who they are. They want to come be a part of it. That wasn't working for the women's game per se. Right. And so they had to learn how to, they don't, or they had to do something to get the women on the map because it was a different fan base. So they had to almost learn how to market again. They'd become lazy in that capacity. So I think that's just a random little side note, but infrastructure was in place so they could actually just, you know, turn on the, the faucet and have, I would say, you know, a decent product and the infrastructure to support a women's program. So they've made quick accelerations or uh, ascensions. I would say, you know, if you look at what's happened in, in France, you know, that's where I played. That's where Jean-Michel Olas, he was one of the first ones to bring us over as American players in 2005 at, at OL Reign, you know, or excuse me, OL, Olympic Lyonnais. They... They, they're they still one of the leaders in the space. There's like two teams, them, PSG. There's a few other that, that are that are competitive, but not in a compelling manner. You know, they've lost a lot of traction in their league. They were probably the most competitive um, to the NWSL for a while. Now WSL, I think, has overtaken them as, you know, one of the top leagues in the world. So NWSL has work to do, and and everyone's eyes wide open uh, on, on that and that we need to maintain our – global status and, and get the best players to remain here, get the best players to come here. Because before, if we kept our U.S. players, we had the best players in the world. 
that's not the story anymore. You look at the top 25 players in the world, it's, you know, you're, you're pulling out hair to, to see if you can get two U.S. players on that list. So now we have to, to be a compelling landing spot for a lot of those international stars to come here. Again, goes back to your fandom, uh, you know, question or, or free agency and get those, those uh, top players here and then build out, I think, obviously, the rest of, of the rosters around them. But, but definitely there's work to be done to, to maintain the NWSL status globally. Speak, speaking of like some of those international players and, and, and you know, the USU's, you know, had a, a dominant run of, of having all the best. Like, do you, when it, when, as we think about the MLS, and once again, we just had a conversation with Kyle Martino, who got to see kind of the rise and was with David Beckham as he came over. And then obviously uh, uh, with Messi, that, that was kind of a big conversation at the time. You know, there's this, there was this opportunity for the MLS to simply, without being a retirement league, to go grab, you know, international stars and, all, and, and take a valuation of Inter-Miami from $200 million to a $1 billion with one guy coming over. Well, in women's soccer, I don't, there's not as much star power, right? So you can't necessarily do that. Are you, are you trying to develop stars? Like, are you trying to, are you trying to develop the next, you know, uh, LeBron versus Kobe conversation? Or, or like, how, how, do you, how do you go about getting to that level? Yeah, again, I love this. Um, there, Messi is, he's a bit of an outlier, Right. Sure. And, and he's a generational talent. When does that next player, is it Mbappe? Is Mbappe as compelling over time as Messi is? I, I, I think it's, you know, time will, will elucidate that answer. But I, I think on the women's side, you had a Marta. Marta was exceptional. Marta, unfortunately, her timing didn't allow her to become that iconic figure that she could have been. You know, in terms of she would have grabbed the world's attention if she was front and center and put in meaningful competitions and meaningful campaigns, uh, you know, and women's soccer was supported in Brazil, supported in South America. It, it would have been a different story. So I do think that the women's game will have those iconic figures. And, and you know, at which point I hope and, and NWSL, we have a system in place that allows us to bring, attract, retain, you know, those top talents. But what I will tell you is we're absolutely thinking about developing those next stars. You know, I mean, that's part of our business model. Long before we even started Bay FC, I was like, why are we not building academies and, and monetizing, you know, these, these players as, as, as nice as I can without making it sound like they're assets, right? But they, at the end of the day, players are. And, and why are we not building academies, free-to-play academies where – you know, you get the best talent. They're they're uh, absorbed in this game. They're engrossed in this game from from you know six on up, and and these become the next generational superstars. You know, that's part of the business model because it hasn't really been done in the women's game yet, and it's just now starting to to become top of mind. I think for a lot of this, you know, smart investors, smart clubs, because if you look at it, you know, you have. Uh, you have the resource or FIFA has the rules in place to uh, solidarity payments if they train players. Right. And so these clubs are benefit from that development process on the women's side. We just haven't had that yet. And it hasn't been a part of the conversation. So I think as soon as that changes or even before it changes, everyone's going to be investing in this pathway to produce those next global superstars. Yeah. So, so that's, that's, that's on the pitch, you know, from, from, a, from a skills uh, perspective and, and yeah. creating, you know, great athletes, you know, great soccer players. But off the pitch, 
is there, is there any initiatives that you have in mind of thinking about developing, uh, I mean, in today's world, uh, I don't know, TikTok and, and you know, you got driver <laughs> D- supply. DK, let me like throw out like a, a crazy provocation that you know, we've been talking about. Like if Dennis Rodman was around today, <laughs> yeah, you know, playing today in the dominance, you know, dating Madonna, yeah. all the things, would he yeah. actually be the biggest global super, superstar that existed? You know, so like thinking that off the court fandom, like, you know, we see with like Kelsey and Swift going on right now, just yeah. like those cultural connection points, you know, especially socially driven, you know, social platform driven. Are you thinking about that development, those stories? So, yes, but I would, yes, 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 yes. Okay. So absolutely. Um, that is part of, if you're, if you're, you know, if you're listing out your top five targets, you know, social media reach, intrigue, fan, fandom, connection, like all of that is factored into the value of that player, right? In terms of who you're going to target as your top players. But in terms of developing it, yes, we want to provide access for these players to be able to, to monetize themselves, to, to tell their stories, to, to become an intriguing person that, that, you know, everyone wants to know more about ultimately more engagement, more fandom, you know, and you get on the flywheel. But I also would just caution that there's risk in that too, right? There's so much risk, I think, in like these young players being exposed to that early on. What are they losing sight of? I mean, that's part of the argument of why the U.S. Women's Nash team didn't do so well at, at the last World Cup is that none of them are actually focused on their play. Instead, they're focused on their brand. And and so, you know, is is there space for that in, in club sports and in a professional sport environment? I think there is, but I do think that they're with the access and the exposure that, that these young athletes are having to navigate, I just think it's, it becomes a moral question as well as one that is business driven. And I think that's like the fine line that we as a club really want to be cognizant of and, and respect these players, put them first um, as a human and not as, you know, I keep using the word monetize, but you know, as something to be monetized, uh, so I think that that is a, a balance that we have to strike as a club. But I, but absolutely, I mean, if someone's all in and they want to do it, and this, and and they're not suffering on the field, like makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I, 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 I completely, I side with you completely on all of this. You know, there's and then there's also just the the for the love of the game, the game itself. Yeah. You know, the yep. pure, the pure. You know, just just go play ball and let the rest fall into place. And you know, that, that's that's what we've been taught since we we're little playing the sport. But you know, we started this conversation by saying that professional sports are entertainment. And, and as Dan mentioned, Drive to Survive has has me and my dad and, and, and people around me, you know, watching F1. Uh, uh, now, all of a sudden, golf is trying to do something that's similar. So it's like it's hard not to take a peek at some of these other ways to artificially create entertainment around the sport outside of the game itself. But as you you know heard me say earlier in this, in this conversation, I think there are sports that need that. I think I think they're, they 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 definitely need something outside of you know turning left a, a thousand times in a car to be able to get it, the entertainment factor for us to you know for new people to come on to to the sport. But right, football and soccer. I, he's heard me say it quite yeah, a bit. Football uh, and DK, soccer. Please all, too. He believes that uh, the footballs are just above everything else in the world but it, they have the cheat but but it's but the reason the reason for that is because of the entertainment that's that's on the pitch and i would even make a an, a, a a statement that soccer is probably a little bit better than football because you can't you can't turn away 
football, you have, you know, every four seconds you can look down and, and you know, uh, have a drink of your beer Wait. or make a comment yeah, about but, something. But, but let's you talk guys about just keep that. On playing. Let's talk about that because it's funny you say that. The other night, I my, I have four kids. So I have triplets that are 10, they're boys, and I have a seven year old. Was that in your research? Just wondering. <laughs> yes, I actually have, I have a question. I have a question about that, but we'll save that I, I, in a second. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so um, we're having dinner and we had Monday night football on. Now I finally am just getting back into watching football. Like I grew up on Sundays, hanging out with my dad and my brother, watching the 49ers and the Green Bay Packers. And, and so I love football, like American football, but because I had kids, I really, stopped watching it for the last 10 years of my life. And now they're getting to a, a more, you know, manageable stage. I'm turning it back on. And so we're watching it while we're having dinner. Yeah. Bad parenting. You're not supposed to have TV on during dinner. Well, whatever. Um, and, and I watch my kids, it's Monday night and I watch them and they turn around and, and they watch to play and I'm trying to explain some stuff to them. So they're starting to get it. And, and then they turn back around. They're like, Oh, they're like engaged in it. And I'm like, you guys are watching this closer and they play soccer you guys are watching this closer than you've ever watched any soccer game that I put on EPL on the weekends. Like, what is it? What do you like about this? And they said, well, the plays are shorter. We like it. We can, we can watch, we can, we can, we can watch a play, have some dinner and we can turn back around to your point. They actually like that. They like that. There's a break in the action. They can do their thing and then come back to it. Cause like, that's where my fear is that we're so ADD as a society now that all we want is quick content. And so that's where I think maybe soccer does have some risk in its future that it needs to be addressed. So that's talk, that's talking, you know, watching it on TV, sitting from your couch as a fan. But another part of our, our fan discussions that we've been having more recently is that, well, does do live sports matter? And I can make an argument that soccer is probably the the top sport that that no matter where the world goes you're going to have to come show up to one of these, you know, Tottenham games to really yeah. see what true fandom looks like. I mean, I went out there and played um, in my first three seasons, all three of my teams went over and played the London game. So we'd always end up, you know, uh, getting invited yep. to a soccer game and you get your jersey and you get to get the, you get the experience. And that is, that is completely different than anything I've ever been a part of. And a part of it is because there, there isn't much start and stop. And obviously there's only a couple goals that actually happen in the game. So, you know, you're spending more of your time jumping around and, and you know, maybe dodging a fist if you're wearing the wrong color <laughs> than you are actually watching the game. So, so would, you, would you say that, that as you go to now build out, you know, Bay FC and look at the bigger vision of where this can go, we're only scraping the sur surface of women's soccer, um, do, do you put more value into, you know, trying to find the next big Amazon Thursday night football deal where you get $3 billion off of one contract? Or is it more about filling out a stadium, you know, as you guys come, come to town? I, yeah, I think, uh, can I answer it with both? Can I give you the really non-answer? It's both, right? Okay. It really is. And, and I think, again, they exist on a flywheel together. Because if you pack the stadium and there's energy in the stadium and everyone loves it, they're going to be, that is by far a better product for television. Having again, been a broadcaster, you know, it, it matters when you're hitting those early shots and no one's in the stadium um, because they're only filtering in, you know, five minutes before kickoff that, that doesn't look good on television. What looks good is just rabid fandom. Um, can you sell that story on the television? But then also just the game day experience, you know, does that drive you to, to turn on the, the every game that you're not able to attend in person? Does that drive you to turn on, a competing markets game, you know, I think, I think you need both. Um, and, 
in a very big way to be able to rev to to drive revenue at the local level, and then obviously at the league level, right? Because uh, you need both, I think, in order to have hopefully a profitable business in the long run. Yeah, is that, it's a, is that a good non-answer? It, it, it's a great non-answer, but I, I guess the follow-up question I'll have for that on the do live sports matter? They obviously do, but. Could you imagine if we were to sit here today and we were brainstorming, hey, let's like create a live event and we'd say, hey, let's do uh, you know, two hour live event that people are gonna sit and watch or you know, two forty-five minute moments. Like yeah. it sounds a little insane. 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 Yeah. Not that yeah. it doesn't work or won't work or continue to work, but on the do live sports matter, it's funny how we would say that is insane, isn't it? Yeah, it is, but but it also goes to, I think, the works. tradition. Yeah. yeah, it works in the tradition. And, like, and, and sometimes, you know, the selling of it is, it is more important, right? But like, if you're, if you're telling someone that they've got to sit through 90 minutes or two hours in, to, to your point, of a match, like that, that just sounds awful. But if you show them what it feels like, you know, that that is where it's a win. That's where you're like, I'm there. I want to show up. I, I mean, I absolutely, I absolutely think live sports matter. I think like there is a reason that, that people are investing more and more in sports and maybe, maybe it's overinvestment at this point, you know, who knows, right? Not women's sports, but I just, in general, um, you know, the valuations that are out there on some of these, these professional teams are insane. And I just think at this point, like we're, we're so connected culturally to, to uh, like politics, you know, cultural element, everything is tied into sports. Now everything is tied into attention. How do I grab attention? Well, I can get it through sport and, and live sport in particular, uh, you know, if that, if that connection goes away, I, I don't think that, you know, the, the value proposition will be there anymore. I, I have to ask, the, the, I want to go to something you mentioned a second ago. I have a personal question. So I have, five kids um no triplets but i did have five kids in seven years no twins so five so wow i did have a point where i had three kids in diapers although again uh no twins in there and i think you so once it begs said, the question is what is wrong with you and your wife uh, yeah that's, that's a good question there yeah. but, you know, we love babies that's what's wrong with it yeah. we're dealing with teenagers now but we love yeah. babies uh but to that point you, I, th I believe you once said you called the uh, the men's uh, World Cup game once, and you once said, uh, you know, it was the hardest thing you did in your life other than having triplets. <laughs> so I'm curious, uh, now that you're starting uh, a new organization and a new team, uh, is does that beat having triplets, or does triplets still win? <laughs> triplets is so much more rewarding. I'm going triplets all day. Um, <laughs> There's like, uh, there's so many painful days that I've had in starting a team. So, um, I, I think what, what, what was the question, which is more rewarding or which is more yeah, difficult? I was saying which one was more difficult, but I guess yeah. rewarding too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Um, di difficult is, is I would actually say starting a team more difficult okay. than raising so triplets. That, that took the top slot. Yeah, it, it does. It does. I think the emotional wear and tear of of starting a team has has been more than I anticipated by far. With triplets, I had no expectations of anything. And and there's so much, you know, there's so much joy in the in in the misery that yeah. 
embedded, um, you know, I have revisionist history glasses on and, and I remember it with, with smiles and candy. So I'm going I, I guess, started uh, yeah. team. I'm in, I'm in yeah. the throes right now. So <laughs> yeah, I guess a baby is cute. Uh, a business yeah. that's just starting isn't cute yet. <laughs> no, dealing <laughs> I, with grown adults is never cute. <laughs> exactly. Well, actually, too, but you know, that's one interesting thing about no expectations versus versus expectations. Yeah. I guess how as this is unfolding, how is your expectation uh, you know, living up to what you thought it was or what it's going to be and how is it a, a bit different? Yeah, super different, super different. Um, the process, you know, where, like what I'm driving, what I'm not, you know, that's very different being a founder, being a co-founder, uh, you know, but it's, it's so different. I was just naive, right? I mean, the reality is we're starting a team, we're starting a massive organization and, and I think I just didn't, fully understand what was going to be needed, what was going to be asked, uh, you know, and, and thought that we'd someday we'd, you know, we'd show up in April and we'd have a team and we'd have this incredible game day experience and it'd be a massive win, right? Like that, that was almost my naive perspective. I'm simplifying it, but to a certain extent, there was just a lot of steps in the process that I, that I just wasn't fully uh, in tune with before we started. So I think it's very different from my expectations. I think that in five years, it's going to align entirely with my expectations. I think that we are going to be able to achieve everything that we've set out to achieve. Uh, I think we've got a great group of people working on this project and driving the vision. So I feel really good about, you know, where we're going to be in five years. I do. What does that look like? You know, I, I, I played in Oakland in, in the A stadium and gosh, that wasn't fun. Played at Stanford <laughs> and bad. there's about... 10% attendance at a massive, massive game. They end up going to the Rose Bowl. We're a pretty good team there. You know, I can't I can't look at the Silicon Valley and say that, you know, it's just this sports haven. Now, of course, the Warriors have done some, have some magical times and the Niners are playing the best football. And by playing the highest level of football, you, you bring, you know, a, a decent, you know, following to you there. But for a expansion team entering into that market, I would say that that's probably the most difficult market in America to try to introduce a new team and get them to go, you know, watch even a new sport, you know? So yeah. what, what does, what does five years look like in that city? You know, it is, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it you're, at that. So you're calling Bay Area fans fickle. I agree. I didn't, I didn't say you. <laughs> I, <just kidding. laughs> um, I think there has been a history of that for sure. Um, hopefully we change that, uh, that narrative, but Five-year success um, to me is, I, I, I say this with caution, right? Like you focus on year one as an expansion team. Like I worry about year two. I worry about year three, right? Because the, it's not new. The energy is different. Maybe we're not as successful because it's going to take a while to build a successful team on the field, I think. You know, so I, hear about, I worry about year two or year three. I think once you, once you have your, your long-term plan, uh, you know, kind of going through the anticipated steps. And by the way, there's going to be unanticipated moments, but once we get to five years, you know, what I envision to be is sold out stadiums all the way through. I really do. Um, sold out stadiums year one, but I think keeping that momentum in year two, year three, um, I think that, you know, I think it's 
plausible. I think it's going to be difficult, but I think sold out stadiums, incredible game day environment. We'll have our new training facility. So we're going to be bringing in top players in the world because they want to play here because the resources are going to be there to support them. So they can go live out, you know, their dream to be the, you know, making their national team playing at a world cup, whatever that, that may be. Um, I think people are going to be looking towards us and to us to be driving innovation. When we're talking about, you know, you know, the, the, the ways that players can tell their stories on TikTok or, you know, what are the new means of communication that drive that fandom? I think hopefully we're at the front of that, whether that's even just VR experience at game day, right? It's not just a packed stadium. It's how are we, you know, broadcasting to the rest of the world. I, I think of it as success would look like not only are our stadiums filled, um, but we are a massive global brand. And so you've got already followings and supporter clubs in, in the UK. You've got them in, in South America because we've you know signed an incredible Brazilian young talent. And we were doing the same thing in Asia. And, and so I look at it like we've got a global footprint that is just starting to bubble up to the surface uh, in year five. And, and I think by year five, you know, hopefully we're competing for a title, you know, San Diego Wave second year as an expansion team, they just won the shield. I think that's really unheard of. Um, you know, it sets the bar pretty high for expansion teams, but I think what we want to do on the pitch is play, you know, a much more uh, controlled and yet entertaining. Like you're going to take risks. If you're a Bay Area team and you're not taking risks, we're doing something wrong, but you know, control a game much more in possession, out of possession. Um, so I think that takes time to develop. And I think five years is like, this sweet spot when hopefully we're going to see that product on the field pay dividends. But, but the connection with the community is what's going to drive. I think that hopefully pack stadium environment from year one on to year five, even when we're not maybe performing to the level that we hope we'd be performing at, uh, you know, in, in the stadium. Awesome. <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah. I'm a, I, I can be honest. I'm a free agent. Um, I, when it comes to women's <laughs> soccer, so I, I I got some decisions yes. to make here soon, and I think that you don't you, have any uh, decisions. I got you. I got gear coming for you, <laughs> and, and decision made. I love that the brand is incredible too. You guys are doing a great job. Thank um, you. But as as we start to wrap this thing up, the, the uh, I, I I would love to continue this conversation just just because I really think that we're in a, in a very pivotal moment. You know, where everything feels uncertain. And, and no one really knows what the next couple of years look like, you know, uh, domestically, internationally, election coming up, all of that. For whatever reason, sports has been kind of lifted up as this, this light that everyone's looking into. Yeah. And whether that's, you know, a bubble uh, when it comes to some of the major uh, uh, sports uh, in America and the valuations that they're getting, or if it's still only the beginning and, and there's still a lot more that can happen in some of these uh, new insurgent sports that are, that are happening. I'm I'm really excited to see what happens uh, specifically with uh, with some of those emerging uh, emerging leagues. Uh, you know, talking to Paul about what they're doing with the PLO has me so excited about um, the Olympics that they're now going to get into and and what they're trying to do. You know, internationally with that, um, uh, with the MLS, uh, obviously the all eyes on on what they do over the next five years. They they obviously had a great you know spike in in attendance, spike in relevance, spike in in viewership in this season. Is that going to be be able to sustain itself? Well, right. that that now has kind of some some high expectations. I, for whatever reason, um, and just over the last you know month or so, really diving into women's soccer, I just feel like you guys have nothing but opportunity and and uh, with the most respect, you know, low expectations where you can now go out and and gain some super fans in 
and 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 you know giving them an experience that they never ever expected that they're going to be able to have because of the quality of play because of the similarity to um you know what they may have seen on the, on the, on the men's pitch um so I'm, I'm really excited about that but but personally as, as we wrap this up what, what chapter are you in you know what, what where, where where are you at in your in, in your <laughs> career is this is this the last one is this you know the start of of your of your you know uh, uh, the next five teams that you go own across multiple sports. Like what what, what chapter are you in? I um, I think I'm forever probably maybe I don't want to say an entrepreneur or disruptor, but but I think my brain always kind of goes towards uh, some of those uh, opportunities. But I I'm super interested in the business side of of sport right now and just learning business and general investments and and starting to understand like the framework for making good decisions in these spaces. Um, that's like where I'm just in a learning phase where all I want to do is just soak up a lot of information about like, I'm taking an accounting class, you know, I'm doing an entrepreneurship and residency with Sixth street where hopefully I start to understand, you know, the way that they break down investment opportunities. And, and so just using that to then hopefully drive um, some, you know, new opportunities, uh, you know, that, that yes, maybe I'm I'm leading or founding, but ultimately working with incredible people to set up and and then go and do something, um, you know, something else after that. I feel like I'm I describe it best with by looking at my history, which I don't know that I ever thought about this with as it related to me before. Which is like I feel like I'm a kind of like a serial. I don't want to say achiever because that sounds too like yay, good job at Alley. But no, I think I'm like okay, here's a serial task person where like, okay, I, I played soccer, then I want to do broadcasting, then we're doing, you know, investing in starting a team. And now like, this is kind of in my mind, the business phase um, of my career and that I want to lean into and, and, you know, hopefully get involved in, in some meaningful projects that, that continue to drive things that I really care about. Because I don't, I, I don't know what it is. There's, I don't like to just say, oh, let's just hire women. Or I don't believe in that. Like I actually, you know, that's, that's reverse discrimination, first of all, but it's, to me, it's not authentic. And it's like, no, let's go hire the best people. Right. So, so my way of change is just proving it and letting the results speak for themselves. So broadcasting for the men's world cup. Great. Now, oh, good. You know, now people believe men, women can broadcast men's world cup games like that actually, or men's games like 2018, that wasn't happening. You know, we check that box. Okay, now it's a foregone conclusion that you're going to have women involved in men's broadcast. Um, you know, this hopefully proves that investing in women's sports, women's soccer, is really good business. And and all it took was, you know, someone to believe in the investment thesis. And so, so if I could check those boxes, take some learnings along uh, with me. I don't know what the next um, big thing that I'll want to bite off will be, but but I think you know it hopefully is something that drives change for in a good way. That points us. That's an unbelievable response, and I think it points us to to what I think the answer is going to be to this. So, at, at this chapter of your career, um, our, our kind of last and final question that we always have is that: at this point in time, are you doing or are you playing business? <laughs> I I wish I I help me understand the question. Meaning, are you just you know talking to talk and in the locker room, kind of messing around, talking about some investments um, and just playing, or are you actually get your hands dirty and you're actually doing some business? Yeah, I'm gonna go with um, doing. 
I, I'm, I'm trying to learn about P&Ls, so that's not sexy. It's, it sounds like <laughs> sounds like, like you're doing business. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thanks, Allie. This is awesome. Yeah. This is great. No, this thanks, is, you guys. We appreciate it. I love the conversation. And thank you for doing the research, you know. We need more hey, of that, so thank the, you. The, the, there's some more that we need to get uh, to, yeah. but we don't want to kill. We don't want to make this a seven-hour pod. So uh, <laughs> your, yeah. Yeah, your background is incredibly interesting no. when we were getting into it. Oh yeah, no, we'll, I don't think it's that interesting. But <laughs> we'll have to come out. We'll have to come out to a game here soon, and 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 can you continue the conversation? Yeah, well, I don't know. You're not going to be able to get tickets. Going to be sold out. Yeah, <laughs> Hopefully, we know someone. The right answer. Yeah. The right answer. <laughs> Thanks, Sally. Awesome. Yeah, have a good great. one. Thank you very Thanks, much. You guys. Thanks for listening to Playing Business. As you know, Dan and I value good discourse and perspective. So let us know what you agree with, disagree with, or we'd like to hear in a future episode. Always appreciate a good review or a rating, and be sure to subscribe. Thanks to the On Discourse and Audio Up team for the production of the podcast, and see you in the next episode.